for most Americans, like the big problem in their life is not trying to decide between a Roth IRA or a 401k or traditional IRA. I mean, that's not where people really get tripped up. And so I think it's so complicated because of all those emotions that are involved and not just that the social comparison, which is what you just talked about. And we've definitely found that in our studies. So we call it money status beliefs. And there's a whole specific set of beliefs that are highly self-destructive that essentially are the keeping up with the Joneses. Again, this goes back to our tribal mindset. And the funny thing is that we like to disparage people who care about what other people think as if this is somehow abnormal. (laughs) And the big irony is that's exactly how we're wired. Like your ancestors, if they did not care what the other 150 people in their tribe thought about them, they got killed (laughs) or they got expelled. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset Show. This is a podcast about the financial, money, and recreational mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset Show and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Dr. Brad Klontz, founder of the Financial Psychology Institute. He's also an associate professor at Creighton University's Hyder School of Business, and he's a managing principal of your mental wealth advisors. Dr. Klontz was awarded the Innovative Practice Presidential Citation from the APA for his work in helping people with money and wealth issues. Dr. Klontz has been a columnist for the Journal of Financial Planning, On Wall Street, and psychologytoday.com. In addition, he has co-authored and co-edited five books on the psychology of money. His work has been featured on ABC's News' 2020, Good Morning America, and in USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, and New York Times, to name a few. The psychology of money is something that is fascinating to me, and to have the opportunity to have a conversation with Dr. Klontz and share it with you makes it even better. So be sure to listen in, because I'm sure you'll hear some interesting things about money, wealth, and psychology, and how they all come together. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the pleasure of being with Dr. Brad Klontz, the founder of the Financial Psychology Institute. Thanks for being with us today, Brad. My pleasure, Larry. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you taking out the time to spend with us. Listen, it's always interesting. Psychology and money is always something that is very interesting to me. But before we dive into that, can you tell us about your path to becoming one of the co-founders of the Financial Psychology Institute? Larry, it was a bit of an ugly journey, to be quite honest with you. So clinical psychologist was my original training. I'm still a clinical psychologist, but essentially I got out of school. I owed $100,000 in student loan debt. I had grown up working class and was instilled with this mindset that debt is terrible. Like don't borrow money. And it was the only way to get through school though. So I had a lot of stress around it. I saw a friend of mine make $100,000 in one year trading stocks. And I would sit right next to him, watch him do this. And I thought, what an incredible way for me to get out of debt because my friend knew nothing about the stock market and I knew nothing about the stock market. So I thought it was a perfect match. And so I sold what I had of value, which for me wasn't a whole lot at that time. I, essentially, I had a truck that was worth the most and that I had. And I took all the money I could get and I started day trading with it. 
And I had a fabulous few months and then the dot-com bubble burst. So I caught it right at the end of the bubble. It was a miserable experience watching my money disappear. And I was asking myself the question, like, why would a reasonably intelligent person do something so radically stupid with his money? And that's how I got interested in financial psychology. (laughs) Essentially, I was trying to figure out my own. That's amazing. And I think it's a story that I was in the business at that time, saw and experienced that. And it seems like history tends to repeat itself over time when it comes to those types of situations and environments that we're in. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it's kind of a sad thing, but my books become really popular every time there's a crisis (laughs) because, you know, it hurts and it's stressful and it's a time for reflection. And then the goal, of course, is to not keep repeating those mistakes, right? That's, That's sort of the goal. And I know you know this, Larry, having worked in the industry, it's like, you become wiser, you become more resilient to the emotion because advisors are, are not immune to this. As a matter of fact, I did a study in 2008 that showed that not over 90% of the people in our sample who were financial advisors had trauma from what was happening in the market at that time. And right. it's a traumatic experience for a lot of us to see your money melt away or your business take a hit or you're having to call up clients and give them some terrible news about delaying retirement. So there's tons of emotion that's wrapped up in it for everybody, professionals and lay people alike. I agree. When we go through bumps in the road, I always tell clients, I get a double dose because not only am I helping you and watching it and trying to experience this through your shoes, but I'm also experiencing it personally because I have investments, I have an IRA, I have retirement assets, I have college savings. So I'm kind of going through it in two regards, right? So what does it mean? Again, I told you I'm fascinated by psychology and money. So what does it mean to be a financial psychologist? What does it entail? Yeah. So it's something that I kind of made up, to be honest. You can't get a degree in financial psychology, but essentially it is the combination of money and psychology, our emotions, our beliefs, our behaviors. It's something I became obsessed with when I was trying to figure out my own family history around money and my beliefs around money. And so essentially that's what I do for a career is I I study the intersection between our psychology and our financial behaviors and beliefs. We've been told a lot on my 20 plus years in the business that a lot of people's ideas and philosophies around money and we're kind of taught to ask the question, you know, what did money mean to you? What was it like in your house growing up? Is that accurate? Is a lot of that foundation of our ideas surrounding money really developed in those early years? Absolutely, Larry. And I would put you in the um, category of the elite advisors who are actually talking about this. And it's a huge deal. The entire field is going to be picking up on this. And we're going to start training every advisor in the country around the importance of that mindset. That's the way the field is going, which is really, really exciting. But yes, that's what the research shows. And so at this point, we have studied tens of thousands of people in our studies really focused on their mindsets around money. And so we have linked financial outcomes like income, net worth, credit card behaviors, The whole host of of financial outcomes, we've linked them very specifically to your beliefs around money and where we get our beliefs around money from our parents, from our grandparents. And that was part of my journey, too. So one of the things I discovered is I went home and I started interviewing my parents around what it was like for them growing up around money. And my poor mother had been through this experience before with my training as a psychologist where I sit down with a tape recorder and I'm like, "Okay, mom. And she's like, oh, gosh, here we go again. Um, But I was asking her, like, what was it like for her growing up? I had no idea. What was it like for grandma and grandpa growing up? And I found these stories. The one that really comes to mind is my grandfather lost all his money in the Great Depression. So went to the bank one day, all the money's gone. 
I didn't know that. I knew he lived through it, but I didn't know he had that experience. He never put a dollar in the bank the rest of his life. He died in his 90s. No wonder he wasn't doing well financially, right? And so all of a sudden, when I heard that story and I imagined that traumatic experience he had, then my mom's fear around money and her scarcity mindset, it all started to make sense. And then me coming along, not wanting to be poor like my family and then taking some outrageous risks, that made sense. And so when I was able to link those stories back to my own beliefs and explore that, it, it transformed for my financial life. And so essentially, that's a lot of the research and work I do with clients now. That's amazing. I mean, listen, you really just prompted my recollection, right? My grandmother died a couple of years ago. We lost her, but she was born in the Depression, 1929. And she was the type of person that it didn't matter how much money she had. You could have tell her she had $10 million in the bank and she was nervous about what was going on. And she didn't have $10 million in the bank. She had a lot less than that. But the reality was it didn't really matter because she she saw what her family went through and she was scared no matter what about money. It frightened her. So how much does mindset, you mentioned mindset a couple of times, how much does mindset have to do with poor mental wealth? I think it has everything to do with it, Larry. Now, of course, you're talking to a financial psychologist and we've done studies like one of the most recent studies we did. We tried to get people to save more money and I put half of the people in a financial education class. So this was taught by a Ph.D. in financial planning. This is how you save. These are cash equivalents. These are healthy financial ratios. I mean, all that stuff you really need to know. The other group, all I had them do, essentially, I talked about these beliefs around money. I educated them around that a little bit. But then I had them create really exciting pictures of why they would want to save to begin with. And part of the theory was, we're just not wired to save. We're not wired to invest. This this actually goes against our biology. And if you think about it, 99.9% of our time on Earth as human beings has really taken place in tribes of about 100 to 150 people roaming around. It's like you couldn't save if you wanted to. Like, well, you can't carry it with you. You know, food's going to spoil. If you save too much, the rest of the tribe's going to look at you as selfish and kill you or kick you out. I mean, it's like we have to overcome our natural inhibitions to do what we should be doing around money. So for me, what's crazy is that anybody does anything right around money. I mean, Mm -hmm. the average American's in terrible financial shape. So we have to really take that as an understanding of humanity. And so for that other group, I just got them super excited about picturing their goals and making um, representations of those. You could picture a vision board kind of experience. What we saw in that group, 73% increase in savings after one month. I tracked them a month later. So the educational group had a 22% increase. So they both started around 10% education. They bumped up to about 12% getting really excited about the vision of your future and why it matters to you and how it connects with your values, they went to 17% savings. And I guarantee you, if you would ask them, like, could you save any more money? They'd be like, no, you know, I I can't do it. There's all this other stuff going on. But when we can harness that excitement and that powerful vision of why we're doing this to begin with, we become unstoppable. That's amazing. You know, and I think what that really bodes well for is the importance of and really emphasizes the importance of having a financial plan, right? Having those pictures of, okay, this is what I want retirement to look like. This is where I want to live. This is the lifestyle I want to have, which really are those pictures that you mentioned. And now starting to work towards those goals, giving yourself enough time to actually get there is really key. Absolutely. And it's it's a future orientation, right? So think about it. If you don't have an orientation towards your future, why would you do anything painful right now 
<laughs> right. to take care of that future unless you have a really clear vision around it. So I absolutely agree. Financial planning in and of itself is an incredibly powerful tool. Yeah, I was just hearing actually Jamie Hopkins, who I'm sure you know, he was just talking about some of the scarcity mindset and he equated it back to like the Neanderthal era or even when we were in tribes, right? You didn't eat in moderate, you didn't do things in moderation because you didn't know when the next opportunity was going to come. So people ate, if there was food, they kept eating because they didn't know when the next meal was going to come from. And that's kind of the psychology, I guess you're talking about that we're battling against. Well, he was actually talking about my book in that little piece too, by the way. Oh, there you go. He didn't mention (laughs) the book. So, but I guess that's what it was. Yeah. So that was my latest book, Money Mammoth was all about that tribal mindset. Because for me, it really helps. Like one of the biggest problems I think a lot of us have around money is shame, right? Like we feel embarrassed. And, And there's been a lot of studies done on this. Like we feel embarrassed. We have too much. We feel embarrassed. We have too little. We feel ashamed about all these terrible mistakes we've made over time. I mean, it's just like shame, 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 shame. And so for me, what was really powerful was two things. Number one, blaming my mother. <laughs> That's my psychologist joke. But, but kind of looking it into the family system and, hey, look, you're just playing out the script that was written for you. And so in our research, we call these things money scripts. So these are scripts you've inherited. They're like lines in a play. And here you are reading them out subconsciously. And they have a profound impact on your financial life. So there's that. And then number two, we're just wired to do it all wrong. And so I think if we just start there, like, of course, you've screwed it all up, given where you came from and your biology. Anyway, for me, that was really freeing for me because I definitely had a lot of that shame. Right. And you talk about often money disorders. Are those specific things that you're referring to there? What's that all about? Yeah, they are. So I would say the average American has a money disorder in the sense that they're engaging in self-destructive financial behaviors. What's so fascinating too, Larry, um, is that you know prior to this most recent crisis, we see this in every crisis, savings rates are really low. And then in the midst of the crisis, p- saving rates skyrocket, Spike, right? Yeah. And think about that. It's like, again, people would tell you, oh, I can't save enough. Like before the Great Recession, we were doing incredible and the savings rates were a negative half percent. So essentially the lowest since the Great Depression. And then, of course, tragedy happens and everybody scrambles around and starts saving more, which which you wouldn't think would be the case. Right. So you're financially right. stressed and all of a sudden you're saving more money. But it's that it, we're really influenced in a powerful way by our emotions. And so the average American's not in great financial shape. And then for some of us, it becomes this pattern of really highly self-destructive behaviors where we know that we should be doing something different and we can't do it. And so examples of that are like gambling disorders or people are compulsive buyers, um, which, which is actually pretty common in the United States, actually compulsive buying disorder. There's as many people suffering from that in the United States right now as are suffering from depression, which is just like sort of mind boggling because you probably hadn't even heard of it. So we can engage in those. And then there's other ones that I know you see in your practice where it's not necessarily a diagnosis, but people are, for example, financial enabling others. So I call that financial help that hurts, where you're giving money to try to help somebody. But if you take a bird's eye view, you realize that money is actually keeping that person stuck. Like Mm -hmm. they're not taking action in their life or they're mismanaging it. And so that's another thing we see quite commonly. Or you're even setting them up for failure. I mean, we've had situations where I, I remember a story, a client called me up and said, my daughter's looking to buy a new house, a big her house and I want to give her X number of dollars to help her buy the house. And I said to her, that's fine. We'll do whatever you want to do. It's your hard-earned money. But did you think about the negative implications there? And she took a step back and said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, can she afford the house without your help? And she said, no. 
I said, okay, so what's going to happen now? You help her get into this neighborhood, buy this house that she couldn't ordinarily afford. Now what happens when people in the neighborhood are driving nicer cars than she is? Is she going to have to now buy a nicer car or their kids are going to school wearing nicer clothes or fashion labels and things like that? And she looked at me and she goes, you know, I never thought of those implications. And she said, you know what? I'm going to tell my daughter that I can't help her out because you told me I don't have the money to do so. I said, listen, if you need to make us the bad guy to preserve your wealth and well-being and prevent her from making a mistake, then that's fine. Use us as that excuse. We'll be happy to take the blow. And we just ended up educating them a little bit more and ended up working out in the right way. But people don't realize they want to help their kids. They want to help their family members, and they don't realize that it might actually be doing harm. Yep. So why is money so complicated? I mean, why? Well, Larry, I think you know this too. It's actually pretty simple, right? For most Americans, like the big problem in their life is not trying to decide between a Roth IRA or a 401k or traditional IRA. I mean, that's not where people really get tripped up. And so I think it's so complicated because of all those emotions that are involved. And not just that, the social comparison, which is what you just talked about. And we've definitely found that in our studies. So we call it money status beliefs. And there's a whole specific set of beliefs that are highly self-destructive that essentially are the keeping up with the Joneses. And Mm -hmm. again, this goes back to our tribal mindset. And the funny thing is that we like to disparage people who care about what other people think, as if this is somehow abnormal. (laughs) And the big irony is that's exactly how we're wired. Like your ancestors, if they did not care what the other 150 people in their tribe thought about them, they got killed (laughs) or they got expelled, right? So we're wired to be like very, very sensitive to what people have around us. And that's where you see that lifestyle creep that you mentioned. I'll give you a little example here. I I was telling my wife how much we needed a Sprinter van. And I'll tell you, I had all these very logical reasons for why we needed to do this. It just made total sense. And my wife was sort of like, so why the Sprinter van? I've never heard you talk about that before. And I sat and I thought about it. And I was walking to work one day, which is what I love to do here in Boulder, Colorado. I saw a Sprinter van. And so I decided to count the number of Sprinter vans (laughs) between my home and my office. And I hit 10. There were 10 of those things that I was just being exposed to walking through my neighborhood over to my office. And it's like, oh, it got me again, right? It just sneaks in your subconscious and you'll start to feel this sense that I need this or I want it or a sense of dissatisfaction. I don't have it. And that's what it is. It's the keeping up with the Joneses. We're all susceptible to it. And when we're around people who have stuff that makes us feel like bad, we call it in psychology, relative deprivation, because we don't actually judge how well we're doing in life financially based on the numbers in our account. It's entirely based on how we compare ourselves to others. And so just knowing that, you can really stop a lot of self-destructive behaviors because you'll notice it, you'll be aware of it. You're like, oh, I'm an Instagram. No wonder I'm feeling terrible about myself. You right. know? And just being aware that that's what's happening is extremely empowering. Interesting. So I guess the question is, did you get the Sprinter van? Not yet, but I'm still wrestling. I'm still wrestling with myself. <laughs> That's funny. So there might be 11. So I don't want to move to your neighborhood because then I'm going to have to have a Sprinter van before I get there. Yeah, I'm going to wait till after the pandemic and everyone starts selling their <laughs> there you Sprinter go. vans. There you go. Get them at a discount. Are there a couple of things, maybe two or three things that investors can do in order to have or create a better relationship around or with money? Are there like very easily actionable steps that they could take to start that process? Obviously, it's nothing that's going to change overnight, but maybe they could get on their way. I think understanding your family history is super powerful. 
like understanding what are these stories? What messages have you gotten from your culture? What gender specific messages have you gotten about money, about investing? What is your family history around it? Because this is having a powerful, powerful impact on your life. So that's the one thing. Know your story, know your beliefs. The next thing I would say is don't trust your instincts at all. Like whatever your impulse is, always second guess it. Don't trust it. Just understand we're wired to do the herd thing, right? Like the bubbles, crashes, these are always going to happen. We're always going to have a job because it's the herd mentality. And it's like, it's really, really difficult to not get sucked into the herd mentality. And we've seen it recently in the market. So we're always going to see it where you're going to be watching something happening and you're going to be like, oh my gosh, am I missing out? You know, and even if you're very rational and you have a plan, there's going to be some doubt that creeps in your head. And by the way, this is survival doubt. Like this is not a bad thing. You need to understand though, that what happens is when you feel like you're missing out, it becomes an existential anxiety. So I don't see it as much as greed. I see it more like fear of death. Because historically, if the tribe moved in one direction and you were standing still, you died. So essentially, I think that's what happens. So whether we're running towards an asset, away from an asset, that when we feel like everybody's moving around us and we're standing still, it creates a tremendous amount of anxiety. So just not trusting those instincts and not acting on emotion. And so essentially putting time between your impulse and your action. And that's actually one of those incredible services I think financial planners provide is they can be that gateway. And so sometimes, like I have that with my wife, where we have an agreement that I don't spend a certain amount of money without consulting her. And it's, it's not a paternalistic kind of thing. It's, you know, I, she'll say yes, you know, if I make a good argument. Right. But it's like sometimes just thinking that I'm going to talk about it with her or hearing myself talk about it, I kind of talk myself out of it because I'm like, I actually don't really need that. Right. And so anything you can do to put time between your impulse and your behavior is very, very helpful. Yeah, I agree. Those are some great tips and great points that people could really enact right away and have an immediate impact and help them make better financial decisions and have a better relationship with money. Now, I want to take a pivot for a few minutes here. And I know that this is something that you're very passionate about. You're very active on social media. And there's a lot of popularity among social media posts recently on all different platforms. We don't even have to name one. I mean, they're all over the place about all very financial topics by a lot of people who don't really have much in the way of qualifications. How is this affecting the psychology of investors and the public at, at large? It really does worry me, to be quite honest. And so I am pretty active on social media, and I got active on social media because I saw some of those posts. So essentially, I told you about my experience with day trading and and my nephews were showing me this new um, app called TikTok. And it's pretty infectious, you know, seeing funny cats and dogs do crazy things and dances and all that. And all of a sudden on my feed, all this day trading stuff started popping up and people were showing like how much money they made yesterday on a trade. Of course, they delete the 20 videos where they lost money. But even when you watch that video, it's like, whoa, look at how much money they made. And so all these comments. And so essentially, I was appalled. Like, I actually had this thought in my head that, yeah, 99% of people after the tech bubble, after the recession, I mean, nobody's day trading anymore, right? Especially <laughs> not with supercomputers now. And you if know, you're 17, the, it's the new thing to do. 18 it is the new the thing new to do. Thing. It was appalling, right? And so, of course, trading anything in an upward market, you make money, right? It's right. just that's what happens in an upward market. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Just statistically speaking, you're going to make money. You also make money not trading. <laughs> if you're <laughs> invested in the market. 
But anyway, I just got so essentially appalled and upset. And I wanted to sort of put out a voice of reason or another perspective on it. And one of the problems, too, is like there's almost a connection with people who don't have credentials that's even stronger because people can relate to them. So, for example, if I'm 17 and I don't have much money and I'm showing you my journey of day trading, you might connect with me because you're 17 and you don't have much money. And so in some ways, people can become even more of a credible source without those qualifications, at least on a psychological level. Right. Yeah, I agree. Because then they look at the advisor and say, hey, that person doesn't want to work with me, doesn't necessarily want to deal with me because I don't have enough funds. But this person's just an average Joe and they can do it. So why can't I? I think it's very, very detrimental because, again, there's really no credentialing. Even outside of TikTok, we have people on you know, blogs writing financial articles that really have no backgrounds whatsoever. It's crazy. It's totally true. And the profession, rightly so. Larry, you're not posting on social media your daily returns for your clients, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And you're not on there saying, you've got to buy this stock right now, like Elon Musk is doing. You know, another person without any qualifications, by the way, at least in that area, he has a big, big impact. Like, I actually want to talk to the guy because there are thousands of people who watch him talk about something and then go take their life savings and, and go it. invest in it. Yeah. And it's like, I'm not sure if he realizes what, what's happening <laughs> um, in terms of, and I think he's just kind of joking around on some of the tweets and whatnot, but people follow that action and they take it as advice and they say, if, if he's saying it, I should do it. And so anyway, it's that's the downside on social media is that anyone can post anything they want on there. There's no accountability to the SEC <laughs> right. around like their claims. If I and, did that, I would have big problems because eventually it would catch up with me and they would not be kind to us for what we were putting out there. But these people, they, there's no ramifications and no real retribution there because they don't have any kind of licenses or qualifications that are a risk. Yep. It's a scary thing. Um, and it's hard to watch, to be honest. Like I said, I'm pretty active on social media. I get messages every day. Like the worst one I saw is somebody lost 500,000 recently because you right. know, they were told to hold. Nobody else held, whatever. And just watching this stuff happen, it's just creating all this trauma all over again. It's, they and held, it's really hard they to held watch. They held the bag, unfortunately, when yep, it was all right. said and done. In 2021 so far, we saw the rise and fall of companies even just due to chatter on Reddit and other social media. And a lot has to do with what we talked about earlier, you know, that fear of missing out on the way up. And then, as you just mentioned, not getting out on the way down. How do these events overall affect even not the 17-year-old, but the 50-year-old retiree or getting close to retiring, accumulated significant wealth, doing things the right way and actually investing? Does this ultimately have an impact on their overall psychology too? I think it does. I think it's hard to sit back and hear stories of people who are making money and even, you know, I don't care how old and wise you are (laughs) and not have a party that's like, oh, Oh, am I missing out? Should I be doing, you know, I think that's actually really, really normal. And Larry, you know, the more people are, the more experienced people have, the less vulnerable they are to taking those sorts of actions. A lot of times because they tried it when they were younger and they got burnt, <laughs> Right. which by the way is, is great. It's really good. Like, I think it's a great idea for you, you to lose all your money when you're 18 versus retire. And you've probably seen this too, retire and have all this time now on your hands now and have a nest egg and then start trading right. with it. That to me is a much bigger tragedy. So I think every should do, if you're going to do it, do it when you're young, where you don't actually need that money to last into your 90s. So I do think it has a, an impact. And I think the market as a whole has a profound impact. And so in a bull market, what we found around risk tolerance is that, you know, everybody tends to be a risk taker. <laughs> right. And they're pretty excited about it. And we have clients coming, and I'm sure you do too, or like, 
I think we should, what? I only got 15% return. You know, Mm -hmm. I want to be more aggressive. And so we're wired to want to be more aggressive in times when we should actually be less aggressive and vice versa. And so I think that that secular, the overall market, what's happening has a profound impact on our investor psychology. We have those conversations all the time with clients. We say, your risk tolerance, as far as we're concerned, is really comprised of two components. One is what you tell us your risk tolerance is and what we think it is. And then the second piece is what happens when you start receiving statements, right? Because I had a client many years ago who called me up in a similar bull market said, hey, I don't understand. The market's going up X. I'm not going up X. And we talked about the diversified portfolio, et cetera. And he put his foot down and said, I want to be more aggressive. I'm more aggressive. I said, okay, I'll document it. We ended up making 50% of his portfolio more aggressive. We didn't go all in. And thankfully, because within the next month, the market was like down 2% and he had a million dollar plus account. So he was down tens of thousands. And he called us up and said, why am I down? What's going on? I said, well, you wanted to be more aggressive. So now you're really feeling the impact of what's going on in the markets. And you're seeing that. And he goes, you got to get me out, make the change back. And I said, well, see, you're not really that aggressive. So we were happy that we only did 50% because it would have been far worse if we did the full amount. But I think that's a little bit of a situation that we're running into now, even in the last year, because the markets have been so successful that we're seeing that type of philosophy come back into play again. Yeah, it's we're wired to buy high and sell low. <laughs> and so that's, that's what we'll continue to do as a species until our brains evolve in another like million years or something, I think. My takeaway from you today is whatever you think you should do, you should do the exact opposite is really what I'm hearing over and over again. Because... It's totally true. Like, <laughs> you know who's better investors, statistically speaking? It's women. Right. And um, by about 1%, which is a lot. And they've really linked it to a lack of confidence. <laughs> so just wrap your head around that. Like, so essentially not being so confident that you know what's happening in the market, that you can predict the future tends to be really, really good for your investment returns. So I'm always trying to shatter people's confidence. That's amazing. That's amazing. All this talk about social media and what we're talking about, all this hype that's going on online. We talked about how it affects the industry as a whole and how it affects investors and financial advisors, et cetera. Do you think there should be some type of regulation involved for these folks in order to say and do what they do on a regular basis? I just don't know how to do that in a society where, you know, free speech is is one of the uh, founding principles. I feel like it's same thing with like medical advice, that kind of thing. I mean, you're always going to hear people suggesting what you should be doing about your cold sore at the next barbecue or whatever. So I don't know that we can ever get rid of it. But I think that part obviously is is educating people around who should you listen to? Right. Like, where do you find good financial advice and good financial information? And I think it's become more challenging when anybody can grab a phone and start creating content that goes to millions of people overnight. I think that's the situation that we're dealing with that we've never had to deal with before in history. And so I think we're really trying to sort that out. Like, what voices do we listen to? And so hopefully, given that this is such a new thing, previously, you would have to have a degree of credentials to get vetted to be able to have a voice or to have a uh, platform, if you will, to spread your message. And so there that vetting process is now gone. And I'm just it'll be interesting to see how we evolve and adapt to that over time. Yeah, I agree. I mean, a lot of the day trading, I think, is also, especially in youngsters, Dave Portnoy from Barstool Sports, and he's been very vocal about what he's been doing from a trading perspective. And I know a lot of young athletes and people interested in sports follow him, and a lot of pizza lovers follow him, too. And he has quite the following, and it's 
kind of weird, but yeah. It's weird. We'll see what happens when there's like a protracted bear market. We'll see what's happening with that. Because people think, oh, well, when the bear market comes, I'll just stop. It's like, well, guess what? You don't know. <laughs> you don't know until you're in it and it's too late. You know, right. otherwise it, it feels like a correction. It's sort of fascinating how we believe that we can predict the future based on looking at past charts yeah, or trying to predict the future based on lines. And yeah, it doesn't crazy. work that way. Yeah. yeah, I think COVID's helped us a little bit because there's less of that fear of missing out because no cocktail parties or anything like that to worry about. It's totally true. It'll be interesting to see what happens on the other side of that. Like after the Spanish flu, I'm pretty sure it was the roaring 20s, right? So we'll see if we uh, as a nation and as a world just go on a spending spree. That's something I'm curious about. That's uh, very interesting. Very interesting. Well, Brad, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. And this is the Midland Money Mindset. So we ask all of our guests the same last question, which is, what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? Ooh, I like it. So I actually shot three pieces of content, social media content this morning. And I always put myself in my mission statement when I'm creating content. And so it's essentially my mission, and I'll just tell you what it is. It's very personal for me, but to help bring hope and healing to the world. And so what puts me in the right mindset is picturing this person on the other side of whatever content I'm creating and trying to give them a sense of hope, give them a sense of healing. That's what juices me. That's awesome. And I appreciate you sharing that very personal mission statement with us. It's not taken lightly. Thank you so much. And if people want to find you online or learn more about what you and the Financial Psychology Institute do, what's the best way for them to find you? And we'll have all this information in the show notes as well. So on social media, I'm at Dr. Brad Klontz, whatever platform you're on, I'm there. And then bradklontz.com is the website where I house a lot of the studies that I was talking about, as well as my videos on YouTube and that kind of thing. Great. It's been a pleasure having you, Dr. Brad Klontz. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. I appreciate your time and make it a great day. Thanks for having me. I want to thank Dr. Brad Klontz for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset Show. Dr. Klontz has merged his love for psychology and finance to help others understand why they may do things financially. Brad is a very active member of the FinTwit community and shares his thoughts about what he is seeing going on in the financial services profession, and he's always there to assist advisors in helping their clients. Dr. Klontz can be found across all social media platforms, and all the contact information needed to find him can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandfinancial.com and be sure to smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content. And listen, please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. Be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about the mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. 
To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.